1: Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years and I'm married to one. And my co-host is...
2: Sharon Pierce.
1: Sharon's a practicing CRNA for 20 plus years, a past president of the AANA and the NCANA, and held many other leadership roles. In fact, a lot of our listeners know Sharon or know who she is. Our goal with every podcast is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think we're definitely going to do that today, Sharon.
2: Well, don't we always?
1: I, well, I guess so, and especially with the two ladies that are with us today, uh, Nancy Marie and Sandy Ouellette are back to continue our history series, and today we are going to talk about the mother of nurse anesthesia, and who is that?
2: Alice McGall. I just Magall. got a little lesson right before we started taping
1: all right well Nancy why don't you tell us a little bit about her family and maybe some of her early nursing education
3: well Alice McGall was born in Cash I hope I, I hope I'm saying that right Ohio on November 9th 1860.
2: Well people from Ohio call you I'm sure they'll let you know if you got it wrong well,
3: just I'll blame it on my southern accent <laughs> okay. but she was the third child of Thomas and Nancy Elizabeth McGough and the family mm-hmm. moved from Ohio to Michigan in 1864 uh, which means that they would have moved when Alice was four years old and then later in 1881 they moved to Rochester Minnesota her father was in the grocery business now I don't Hmm. know whether that means he had a grocery store or he was kind of the middleman and supplied grocery stores. I'm not really sure. Did they have
2: grocery stores in the 1860s? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not old enough.
3: Don't well, they look had at general me. stores, <laughs> and there were groceries in there. Right? Okay, yeah. well that makes
1: sense. They had dry goods. Yeah, there
2: yep. were grocery stores because
4: my grandfather had the only one on the Outer Banks of That's North right. Carolina, and that okay. store had been there over a hundred years. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. Uh, wow. Burst, red and white. The family just sold it last year. It's been in the family over 100 years. And probably wow. the chickens
3: were alive when you bought them.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in
3: 1887, Alice McGaw went to nursing school, and she went to Woman's Hospital School of Nursing in Chicago. And she entered in 1887, and she graduated in 1889. I th- that kind of surprised me that way back then nursing schools were a minimum of two years I would have thought it would have been less time right. but mm. well that, that means she
2: probably went to school longer than her physician <laughs> <by the> counterparts <laughs>
3: <laughs> but when she was in nursing school she went with her best friend Edith Graham who is another nurse anesthetist that Sandy will mention in just a little bit and also with Edith's older sister Dinah so later on after she became a nurse anesthetist she was educated in how to use the microscope because that was it became another part of her job to um, look for bacteria under the microscope but anyway
2: Mary sounds Thompson, like you and intubating the dogs <laughs> over, at the, over at the vet school
3: <laughs> Dr. Mary Thompson was the founder of Uh, woman's hospital and she opened many doors for the future of medical training for women not just just nursing
2: Wow, I guess that would have been true because you're talking about
4: that and probably you know it was in this uh, environment with dr. Thompson that Alice McGall may have been encouraged to make a mark as a nurse anesthetist So she probably noticed qualities in her that she didn't know she had herself. And those qualities were things such as commitment to detail, expert clinical practice, and that pioneering spirit, also important for the nurse anesthetists then as well as now. So McGall and Graham graduated from nursing in 1989. As Nancy said, it's a two-year program. And um, then she returned to Rochester, and she worked as a staff nurse at St. Mary's Hospital. At that time, she was chosen by Drs. Charles and William Mayo to replace Graham as their nurse anesthetist. It had been the previous role for Edith Graham, but then she fell in love with Charles Mayo, so she had to leave her job as a nurse senestis when she married Charles Mayo. She didn't have to, but she did. So then, as Nancy just mentioned, the Mayo brothers said, Well, we've got this good in our sinestis, but she certainly has time to do other things. So they sent her to. Play cards. Yeah, to play cards. Oh, <laughs> um, sent okay. her to Chicago to learn to use a microscope uh, so that she could be sort of the. Uh, look at pathological specimens and she also assisted them when she went to administering anesthesia in the office so she was the uh, the pathologist she was the office nurse and she was the nurse anesthetist
2: holy cow so in uh,
4: 1899 her primary role by that time was nurse anesthetist and she practiced very sane clinical uh, practices and skills that are are relevant to today and Nancy maybe you can tell us what some of those are that you think was of relevance
3: today. Well Alice was very very astute observer and she had excellent clinical skills. She was famous for talking to her patients. She talked very calmly to her patients during induction, and in fact, I was reading about her uh, this morning, and she um, incorporated hypnotic anesthesia with open drop ether, and by doing that, she was able to use less ether than ordinarily would have been used, which was safer.
2: Ron Eslinger and he the nurse anesthetist that teaches all those yeah. hypnotist mm-hmm. courses, he'd be proud. Yeah,
3: but um, she was very attentive to titrating anesthesia. She had really good airway skills. She was just a very vigilant monitor. And all one of the things that she did was she published. And I may be jumping into something Sandy wants to say, but she'll she, hit you if she you will in a minute. But she was the first anesthetist to publish, and she published in the Northwestern Lancet. And the title of the article is Observations in Anesthesia. And basically what she reported was that she had done 14,000 anesthetics with no deaths.
2: Do we know how? over what period of time that was? That's a lot of anesthesia. I don't think it was
4: clear as to what period of time it was that, that I could find.
2: The way they worked her could have been a- <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, she
3: published five more articles after that. Yeah. But she always was aware of the surgical procedure mm-hmm. so that she could anticipate the needs of the surgeon. So, you know, as far as the anesthesia was concerned. She stated the great secret of giving anesthesia is not to feel hurried. The surgeon should not hurry the anesthetist. maybe we should tell. I was going to say is that that's today. still true today. <laughs> <No>. uh, the <laughs> surgeon's time, time it is. may be precious, but the patient's life is more so. Oh, mm-hmm. say that one more time. I think that's the pretty surgeon's perfect. time may be precious, but the patient's life. Is
2: more so. Maybe we need to commit that to memory the
3: next <laughs> yeah. time they're telling us I think you we should cross stitch things and put them in all the OR rooms. I, I would like wear
1: it. it on the history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that'd that'd be that great. would be good, yeah. Sarah.
3: The other
4: thing is, I think it's think so that. important that she was so aware of surgical procedures, so she anticipated. The needs of the surgeon Um, obviously um, I'm much younger thankfully than Alice McGall was but when I started in anesthesia and as a young anesthetist we did not use ventilators in the operating room so every patient was hand ventilated and the reason for that was we didn't have the exquisite monitors we have today and we were petrified of an unrecognized disconnect in a paralyzed patient so we were constantly attuned to that patient and in terms of you know I pretty much was a cardiac thoracic Mm -hmm. nurse anesthetist early on and we worked for the surgeon I mean I watched everything he did and I ventilated when he was bringing the suture out, and I followed him he didn't follow us and then of course when we began to use the ventilator the surgeon had to change his ways and he got in tune with the ventilator and so on but that was very very important So, because of all the things that Alice was doing at such a prestigious institution, she was invited to share her story at the Olmstead County Medical Society, and that was in 1899. She had just such an exquisite record of safety and no morbidity, no mortality. Now, she could not be a member of the Medical Society because she was just a nurse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they wanted her to present at the Medical Society, and that she did. And her talk, as Nancy just mentioned, was observation in anesthesia that was later published in Northwestern Lancet. Some other notable events of that particular time. In 1900, she published a paper in St. Paul Medical Journal. Now, she couldn't be a member of the Medical Society, but she could talk to them, and she could publish articles uh, in their journals. And that was on the observations that Nancy mentioned of Uh, right around a thousand cases uh, with no morbidity mortality. And then she was invited in um, 1904 to address the Minnesota Medical Society on observations drawn from her experience of 11,000 anesthetics, which was published in Transactions of the Minnesota State Medical Association. And then as Nancy said, she had many, many more publications, a fifth and final publication, a review of 14,000 surgical anesthesias was published in Surgery, Gynecology, and Obstetrics in 1906. I think it is so critical that she not only was an exquisite clinician, but she also published. Who would have ever known, Mm -hmm. particularly today, who this woman was and what she did if she not only was an excellent clinician, but she published her findings. And that was in the 1900s. So
2: have either of you seen these articles?
4: No. No. That'd be pretty cool to pull yeah. those up. I, they'd
2: probably
4: I have think, uh, white carpet. Uh, you know, I, I'm uh, at the Wake Forest Medical Library at least once a month selecting articles for the data Miller A-file. But when I go back and try to get earlier articles, mm-hmm. you really can't find them over there after a, about... Nineteen forty or something like that. So anything way back in the nineteen hundreds.
2: But if these are medical journals, yeah. have, I'll have to check elsewhere yeah, because they but, can get.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I've looked, and uh, at least that that library doesn't have you
1: know those those earlier publications. Hey Sandy, you said she could not be a member of the medical society. Would anything have to do with the fact that she was female? Was it at that time? I mean, do you know anything about that?
4: I don't know. I would doubt that had as much role, I'm guessing, as the fact she was a nurse. How okay. can a nurse be a member of the medical society? Right. And so I would imagine that's what it was, but they did obviously have a great deal of respect for her right. because they listened to her. They wanted her to speak at their meetings, right. and they could not ignore the fact that she was a skilled clinician with zero morbidity and mortality for mm-hmm. a large number of cases.
1: Yeah.
2: To be honest, I'm surprised they let her give her own paper. I'm amazed they didn't take it and let somebody else (laughs) read it.
1: (laughs) Well, that's what I was thinking you said that they asked her to speak. I mean, I I would think at that time, that would be...
4: But, you know, the physicians had many, many comments about her, the ones that came to Mayo. Uh, Nancy, what were some that you recall reading in your studies?
3: Well, like with Agatha, physicians did come to observe Alice McGall. And one of the statements that was said about her was, many of us have had the pleasure of seeing that peerless anesthetist, Alice McGall, talk her patients to sleep. And I mentioned earlier that that was a big part of her anesthesia method for the patients that she anesthetized. Another statement about her is the things she is teaching about anesthesia is practiced by men all over Iowa and many other states. And that that was not meant to be like it sounds what it meant was she was <laughs> teaching she did a lot of teaching and so a lot of times they would send uh, medical students to observe her or I don't know if they had residencies then or not but that's what it what it refers okay. to because we don't usually think about Alice we think of her more as a clinician but she was also evidently a very very patient and very good teacher and so many people came to watch her and to spend time with her and listen to what she had to say a german physician said anesthetists from all parts of the united states were going to rochester to learn their craft from the mayo's expert nurses because there were other nurses that were coming in and learning to be nurse anesthetists as well from alice so and of course the mayo clinic was was growing and needed more anesthesia providers it was noted in an iowa newspaper her remarkable work has won recognition from medical authorities all over the world so it wasn't just people here in the United States who came to see her her reputation was much broader than that it was pretty global at that point in time and another statement was had I miss Alice McGall or dr. Roberts to
2: administer anesthesia I would not care what agent was used so that goes back to your saying Sandy it's not what's in the bottle it's who tips the bottle." absolutely
4: the critical factor is the anesthetizer
2: yes but
3: her major, um, she, she, her major um, anesthetics that she used were chloroform and ether, but predominantly ether. She was noted for open drop ether. Uh, another statement that was said about her, and this was from Oshner, Edward Oshner, the trouble does not come so much from the anesthetic as from the anesthetist. Mm-hmm, same thing. This li- lack of mortality at Mayo Clinic is due to the fact that they have competent anesthetists. We must learn that the giving of an anesthetic is as important work as that of the chief surgical nurse and almost if not quite as impossible as that of the operator himself
4: just couldn't say it could he (laughs) (laughs) just couldn't say that we were more important than the surgeon but we all know we are that's right
2: if you don't wake up the surgery's no good
3: (laughs) And then another person named Alexander Brown T from England said, Miss Alice McGaw, an American lady anesthetist, records 14,000 cases of ether administered by open draw without a death directly caused by the anesthetic. And I am indebted to Mr. Lynn Thomas, who saw her practicing it and for initial instruction in
2: it. Wow. wow so she was busy all the time what did she have a private life or well not until she that private office. life was probably
4: pretty, <laughs> <Old>. <laughs> probably pretty hard for uh miss mcgall because as we know she she wasn't in the operating room she was in the surgeon's offices and she was looking at pathological specimens and, or playing you know, cards. and people were watching her all, from all over the world but in fact she did manage to fall in love and it was due through the Mayo Brothers that she met Dr. George Castle. He was a prominent surgeon from Iowa and probably one that had rotated through a Mayo to look at the fabulous surgery that was being done there. And at that time, he was a widower and had four daughters. I think two of them were still in the home and two of them were, were not. And So he really needed a wife, you know, because yeah. he had this family and his wife had passed on. So the couple later married in the home of Dr. William Mayo, who was the best man. And the date of that wedding was May 1908, and as Nancy said, she was 48
1: years old. And that's
2: old, Nancy?
3: And, 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 and that and
1: was, then it was, it was <laughs> to, to get
2: married. married. Yeah. I mean, that was
1: old to get married back then. Oh, okay. Forty's yeah.
3: <laughs> the new twenty, though. That's <laughs>
1: yeah. that. now right. Now
4: it is. Yeah. So, following a three-month European honeymoon, Dr. Castle returned to work. And Alice McGall provided anesthesia at the Old Castle Hospital in Iowa, and that later at the new St. Joseph's Mercy Hospital.
2: So she left the Mayo and went to give anesthesia in Iowa. Right. That's love. And take care of four children children
4: by a previous marriage. And she's 48. He just took her on a
2: three-month honeymoon to let her get some rest. and,
4: And the other thing is... I don't think the children accepted her very well. Uh, from what I read, it was uh, very difficult. And also, he really didn't expect her to be an anesthetic. He expected her to run the household oh and take care of the children. And God. that just wasn't her. It, it just wasn't <laughs> her. They, and, did
2: they ever divorce? Yes, this time well, yeah. So,
4: <laughs> <laughs> because we saw of, that one coming. <laughs> from yeah. Yeah, she's not taking care <laughs> So, um, So because of conflicts of the roles expected by him versus Alice McGall. They had a legal separation in 1919, so they were not really married that long, uh, less than 10 years. That's a big deal in But 19-19. they were never divorced, uh, as many people weren't back mm-hmm. in those days. Oh, they wow. never divorced, relegating McGall to the term grass widow. That's what they called these women then, when they were separated legally from their husbands, but they were never divorced. And um, she returned eventually to employment at Mayo Clinic. But by then, there were many, many other nurses that were coming along, and she never regained the same degree of professional esteem and notoriety that she had before her marriage to Dr. Castle. She later developed some health issues, uh, diabetes, I believe, very hard, as you can imagine, to treat during that time mm-hmm. when insulin Uh, wasn't even introduced until what 1922 or something like that and in 1925 was the last year she was employed at Mayo her last few weeks of life was spent in a sanitarium in Hudson Wisconsin
2: that's where my daughter lives really yeah one of my twins lives in Hudson Wisconsin
4: she was there 59 days before she died in 1928 and she was buried in her family gravesite site in Michigan. So we don't hear often as much about Alice McGall, even though she is noted to be the mother of nurse anesthesia, as we do people like Helen Lamb and Agatha Hodgins, mm-hmm. who was the founder of the ANA. But certainly her role was quite instrumental because if she had not been who she was and performed at the high level that she performed and was observed by people not only all over the United States, but all over the world. This history of nurse anesthesia, safety, skill, dedication would have never been told. And it was because these people were coming to this prestigious institution, the Mayo Clinic, that we really got a good start Mm -hmm. uh, by people like her.
1: Sandy, what do you think is her most significant contribution in in paving the way for all of you guys who have followed?
4: I think it was the fact that she was quite dedicated. She was a skilled clinician, and she was a pioneer, attentive to detail. And she not only provided Anesthesia. But as I said previously, she published her findings. Because mm-hmm. if she had just stayed at Mayo Clinic and a number of people came in and some and they saw her and then they went back home, if she hadn't published and hadn't published in some of the prestigious medical journals of that day, the story would have never been told. Mm-hmm. And um, I think all of us should, even today, try to emulate her in many of the basic principles that never change in anesthesia. it's just like Sharon said a minute ago we can get as complex if we want to get with micrograms per kilogram and on and on and on we go but the bottom line is it's not what we're giving but how we're giving it it is vigilance it's attention and lack thereof is what gets us in trouble today just like it did in Alice McGall's And so she set a very high standard for us. And for that, we should be most appreciative.
2: What is it used to tell us something else in school? A good surgeon deserves a good anesthetist. A bad surgeon needs an excellent anesthetist.
4: That's about right. That's right. Yeah, that's that's about true. I don't remember that one, but I probably said well, it. Well, it. it's probably on that
2: big list that we gave you whenever you retired or yeah, to class. So, yeah, right. Nancy, have you got anything you would like to add about Alice, maybe how— you know, you, I, know you, I was gonna say you remember her, I know you didn't know her, but, but the lessons that she taught us.
3: Well, I think that, you know, when I think about her, I think about the time that she lived. Mm. And mm. at that time, she had to have been a very strong and brave person to have done the public speaking that she did about her career. As well as the publishing, as Cindy said. So she had to have been, in my opinion, very confident, very, yes. very smart, very intelligent, and very smart. And the other thing, too, to remember is she was this good relative to what her, uh, how, how low her morbidity and mortality was.
2: Well, low when, as in zero. I mean, you can't get any better than that.
3: (laughs) When you think that, you know, I think when I know when I think about anesthesia now, even though it wasn't the way that I was taught anesthesia, because I didn't come that far after Sandy, you know, I remember we didn't have peripheral nerve stimulators, if you can believe that. And because we didn't have ventilators, we could tell when we needed to give more muscle relaxant by the feel of the rebreathing bag. And also, you listen to the pulse for your earpiece so much that you knew exactly what the count was. You didn't have to count it. But she was using signs and stages. You know, she probably didn't have an earpiece. I'm sure she didn't have a precordial. I don't even know if she had a blood pressure cuff. But basically, what she was doing was she was giving anesthesia by looking at the signs and stages that go along with ether anesthesia, chloroform anesthesia, those things that we don't really talk about anymore. So, that to me is one of the most, when I think about the time and how she had to have been giving anesthesia, you have to admire her. And at the same time, she had time to teach and to show others how to do it. And she cared enough to do that.
1: Wow. Hence the term, the mother of anesthesia.
2: There you go.
1: Miss Alice McGaugh. Well, thank you guys for being here. And I think that's a wrap on this one, Sharon. Uh, We want to thank our listeners to listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and
2: Sharon Pierce.
1: If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Until next time.
2: That's a wrap.
0: Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and everywhere else that streams podcasts. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives if you have questions about your financial future get them answered call the team at 855-304-3748 that's 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com and thanks for your support of beyond the mask